Hi, I'm Douglas Haynes, your Monday host of A Public Affair. We love creating this public space for in-depth conversations about education, ecology, food, and so much more. To keep these conversations going, we need your support. Go to wortfm.org slash donate. Thank you. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. Welcome to A Public Affair. I'm your Monday host, Douglas Haynes. This Friday, April 28th, the Center for Journalism Ethics at UW-Madison will host a conference entitled Ethics, Urgency, and Climate Journalism at the Wisconsin Institutes for Discovery on the UW-Madison campus. The conference is free and open to the public. The conference will engage some of the most important questions facing climate communication and storytelling today. How does the lack of diversity in media shape how climate stories are framed and whose climate stories are heard? Do traditional news values prevent centering coverage of the climate crisis? What are the emerging models of ethical and collaborative storytelling? We're fortunate today to have three guests deeply engaged with these questions who will be speaking at Friday's conference. Mario Arisa is an investigative reporter with Floodlight Environmental News Collaborative and the author of the book Disposable City, Miami's Future on the Shores of Climate Catastrophe. Welcome to A Public Affair, Mario. Thanks so much for having me on, Douglas. And we also have with us Ross Donald, who's an assistant professor in climate, environmental justice, media, and communication at American University. She researches the communication of climate change using archival research and interviews to understand how climate knowledge becomes part of everyday life. Welcome, Ross. Thank you so much for having me. And Justin Warland is a Washington, D.C.-based senior correspondent for Time magazine covering climate change and the intersection of policy, politics, and society. His talk, Journalism, Justice, and Journalism's Climate Challenge, will be the keynote at Friday's conference. Welcome, Justin. We're glad to have you with us. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me on. And welcome, listeners. As always, we'd love for you to join our conversation. If you have a question for our guests or a perspective to share about media climate coverage, please give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also tweet us at WORT Talk or message a public affair on Facebook. So we're going to start with this conference coming up on Friday. As I mentioned, it's a public conference and something that the Department of Journalism and Mass Communication here at UW-Madison puts on every year, but deciding to focus this year on climate change and urgency and the ethics of telling stories about climate change. So I'd love for you all, first of all, to tell us about your roles briefly in the conference, what you see as important in a conference like this, and what you hope to gain from these conversations. Uh, we'll start uh, with you, Mario. Hi, yes. Um, well, I'll be having a chat with uh, Ross uh, and or, or Dr. Donald um, uh, about uh, the ethics of covering climate change generally. And specifically, we're going to talk a lot about um, the larger narratives that people experience when they start learning about the climate crisis and how some of these narratives can really turn some folks off um, and how the media in general is not focusing on other narratives that could really engage viewers. Great. And Ross, would you like to add anything to that? Yes, absolutely. So um, 
I was very fortunate to interview Mario when I was doing my research in Miami because I'm really interested in how journalists themselves are kind of coming to grips with the, the climate crisis. And um, one of the things that I'm really interested in is how kind of journalism is not really structured to be able to um, cope with the climate crisis on, a, on, a, um, on this really kind of deep level. So, you know, we have the environmental desk that is separate from the other desks. Um, there's a feeling that environmental journalists are somehow kind of like campaigners. Uh, and so um, kind of traditional values of objectivity can often get in the way of talking about solutions when we're also talking about the climate crisis. And uh, also there's also um, journalism's role in um, kind of boosting economic activity, like um, really being a cheerleader for growth and um, that can also affect um, and, and hamper uh, climate change reporting. Uh, so those are some of the things that I'm really excited about talking about uh, on Friday um, and also talking about, um, you know, solutions and ways that we can um, make climate journalism, you know, more just, more inclusive and more interesting. Thanks, Ross. A lot uh, that we'll try to hit on as we go through our conversation there today, but I'll turn it to Justin. First, you're the keynote speaker on Friday. Tell us um, what you're hoping for at a conference like this. Yeah, well, I guess I would say I'm, I'm you know, uh, in my in my remarks, I'm, I'm going to cover a little bit of what I would say is, you know, how we got here, some of the history, touching on some of the points we we're just hearing about, uh, you know, of how, how journalism came to cover climate the way it does. And then really focusing on, you know, uh, how I see the, the landscape today, particularly around justice, using justice as sort of a, a lens into some of the bigger challenges uh, for climate journalism. Um, you know, I, I hope that the audience will think a little bit differently about um, about climate change and, and the way in which we write about it. And perhaps there might also be some practical applications. Um, but I, I really just hope to challenge the way that people think about what it means to tell climate stories. Let's pick up on what you mentioned there, uh, justice, kind of at the core of your talk. And uh, Ross and Mario alluded to equity and inclusivity in climate journalism as well. Let's let's continue there. Um, after your keynote, Justin, the conference leads with the discussion of whose voices are included and not included in climate journalism. Justin, if you could tell us a little bit more about your work with the Uproot Project, a nonprofit that aims to diversify environmental journalism, and how you broadly see the issue of diversity in, in climate journalism today. Yeah, so the Uproot Project is a uh, nonprofit organization founded, uh, I guess we officially launched in, in 2021, but we've been working on it since 2019, really working to create community for environmental journalists of color, uh, and in doing so also hoping to diversify, uh, you know, the ranks of people who cover uh, environmental issues and climate change. Um, you know, we've we've done a lot of different things from building a database of, you know, of, of environmental journalists of color to help connect them with editors, doing, uh, um, you know, events and trainings, uh, all sorts of, we have a newsletter now, just trying to build a community really to, to foster uh, that, that community. Um, I think, you know, the numbers sort of speak for themselves. There's a Pew uh, survey out just a couple weeks ago. 84% uh, of journalists covering uh, environment and related issues are white. So that is, you know, generally speaking, uh, journalism is a is a white field. Uh, but but you know the the uh, environmental journalism is is the starkest category. Um, so you know uh, it's uh, it's a huge issue, right? Because that also affects the way in which 
uh, stories are told. It affects, uh, you know, the way that people who read those stories perceive environmental issues. Um, uh, so it's 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 a big thing, and and uh, you know, I, the Uproot Project is is just one uh, little uh, project, one little initiative trying to uh, to to change that. Mario, uh, I'll turn to you next, and then we'll go to Ross about perspectives that you most often see missing from climate journalism. Um, Justin just mentioned there, you know, uh, missing perspectives means we're missing stories and we're missing, uh, we're, we're seeing stories told differently than we otherwise would. Um, let's dig into that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so one of the perspectives that I see that's missing uh, quite often from climate journalism is the accountability perspective, right? Um, who is responsible for the human-caused climate change? Who's profiting from it? Uh, who's trying to stall progress? And a lot of the journalism that I do is focused through this accountability lens. Um, so we end up writing investigative stories and partnering with local journalists and, and national outlets to, to publish these, these investigative stories. Um, and so, you know, yes, uh, environmental journalism is an incredibly white field. Right, I think it was sixty or seventy percent of everybody who's doing this is is white, um, and you know that has has put some structural uh, onuses on on what kind of stories get told. Um, but there's also sort of a, a climate meta narrative uh, in the news today about um, this sort of kind of depressing, doom laden story, right? The world's going to get hotter, the oceans are going to rise, you're not going to be able to get food, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, which is well and good. People need to absolutely understand the impacts of climate change. But there is so much of the story that is being told in terms of who is causing this particular warming, who is causing these particularly strong storms, and, and who is stopping the transition to cleaner forms of energy in order to keep profiting. Um, and that's, that's the narrative that I'm here to tell. Ross, would you like to add anything about missing perspectives or... Um the ways different uh, perspectives frame things differently? Definitely. <clears throat> so I wanted to talk about, you know, how, um, how we do talk about climate change in the media right now. So it's very much focused on scientific knowledge, like you need to understand climate science. Um, and then also, um, you know, I, I guess climate impacts are one way to kind of show climate change, because we often think about it in this very disembodied way. Um, but what um, uh, what uh, these what, what this coverage does is it often focuses on the spectacle without looking at the causes, and um, it often uh, silences the people who are experiencing it too. Um, so there was a study um, in Newtok in Alaska that looked at. Um, you know, how climate change is being reported there. And right now there's, you know, loss of permafrost. There's also incredible erosion. And uh, there are two communities there. Um, and people living there are experiencing, you know, kind of subsidence. Um, they're having to jump over holes in the ground. Um, and uh, a lot of media go there to cover it. Um, but uh, a study found that... Um, very few local people are ever cited in these stories. It's generally scientists and um, and kind of other sort of experts. Um, and so local perspectives are, are very rarely reflected. Um, people living in those communities um, actually have very strong ideas about what they want to do. So one community wants to relocate and the other 
actually wants to stay and is launching a lawsuit against Exxon uh, for causing climate change. Um, but, you know, that agency, those stories, those understandings of climate change so rarely make it into uh, the press. Um, and so we're missing this whole um, richness of stories and experiences, um, which I think turns a lot of people off and also makes climate change feel very exclusive because we really are excluding a lot of people's um, experiences. And I think that also has to do with lack of diversity in journalism. We think about climate change solely in terms of expert expertise because um, we're not thinking about sort of local knowledge of, of um, uh, people who are in more marginalized groups. Um, and, you know, that has a silencing effect. And it also a lot of this um, apocalyptic um, storytelling actually makes people feel more disengaged. Um, so uh, it can make people um, feel apathetic. Um, story, um, studies have also shown that um, kind of uh, reporting about climate change in this way um, has led to inaction at the legislative level as well. And so there are a whole a host of reasons why this very kind of narrow reporting, uh, while understandable, is um, a problem and it's causing a lot of problems too. You mentioned uh, that sort of disempowerment that comes with the doomsday narrative. A couple of you just mentioned that, and that's something we've talked a lot about on this show, actually. And uh, I'd like to get uh, your takes uh, collectively on the solutions journalism movement. Um, in just a few minutes, but I'm going to reintroduce you first. You're listening to A Public Affair here on WRT 89.9 FM Madison. My name is Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking today about ethics and urgency in climate journalism with three leading climate journalists and scholars, Justin Warland from Time Magazine, Ross Donald from American University, and Mario Risa, who is an investigative reporter with Floodlight Environmental News collaborative. So let's um, pick up on that quickly uh, since it just came up, the idea of reporting about solutions. What are the uh, trends that you're seeing in solutions reporting and how might uh, journalists be able to do it better or focus more on it these days? I'll come back to you, Justin. Yeah, well, there's definitely been a huge uptick in, you know, as you as you said, solutions reporting, solutions journalism around climate. Um, you know, I think I don't inherently have a problem with, you know, writing about solutions. It's important. It's 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 worthy of our attention. I do think that there is a, uh, you know, sometimes implicit in, in, in you know, advocacy for solutions journalism is uh, that, you know, talking about the problem is is as you alluded to, it might be too scary. It might put people off. And, you know, in my work, the way I try to approach this is is to weave together uh, problems and solutions where relevant, right? I mean, if you're writing a story about something that's that's happening, a problem, and there's a solution, uh, you know, integrate that into the reporting and, and vice versa, right? Like, you can't write about a solution without really getting into, uh, you know, what what the problem is. Um, I, I do. I do want to just pick up on one thing that that Ross said just earlier, which I thought was really it's related to this. Uh, talking about uh, you know communities and, and the experience of communities that are uh, you know people go to and, and just talk to experts. And there's another sort of related and uh, problem of people who go to communities, talk to people, and then write the narrative that they came in expecting, right? Uh, and so I think that is a huge challenge and it gets to this doom and gloom if you go to these places and i spend a lot of time on the road going to frontline communities 
that have pretty sad stories in many cases, but the people there are resilient. You know, they're not they're not living in a doom and gloom mindset in the way that oftentimes the sort of narr- the narrative might be in Washington, D.C., or you might expect them to. Uh, so I think it's important not only to talk and quote them, but to really try to get a sense of what what is the experience and try to convey that to an audience. Uh, so just a related thought. That's a really important one, Justin. It takes a lot of time and resources to do that kind of reporting, right? Um, tell us about the challenges of doing that where you're not just reporting an expected narrative and getting a few quotes to support it, but really getting a sense of the experience of living somewhere uh, with something like rising sea level or other climate-related issues. I mean, that's it's absolutely true. It's a privilege to be able to spend time really uh, you know, getting to know a community and it's hard because, you know, you, every reporting trip I take, of course, starts with the phones. It tar- starts with, you know, what can I find online? And, uh, you know, typically, you know, I'll pitch something and, and then you got to go and actually deliver. And you'll see that the, the story on the ground that's experienced by talking to one person who refers you to another, who refers you to another. And all of a sudden you're starting to get a sense of the story that's completely different than what you uh, sort of started with. And that requires, you know, as I said, not just going there, but going there and spending more than 24 hours there. And so that's, it's a challenge. But I think if you have the resources and you have the time and the care, I think care is important, uh, you start to you start to see stories uh, in a way that's a little different from what they look like at the desk. Before I send us in a little bit different direction here, I want to give um, Mario first and then Ross a chance to respond to Justin about solutions, journalism, or anything else he just mentioned there. Yeah, absolutely. Just wanted to sort of interject with, you know, hi, I live in Miami. It's a frontline community. We've got uh, the city hall of, of Fort Lauderdale, 25 minutes north, which was flooded with eight feet of water last week. And uh, well, they're not going to be able to use the building anymore, right? And this was not even a tropical storm. It was just a, an unusually high rain event that shut the airport down for, what, three days? Second largest airport in the state. Um, so frontline communities are also where you might least expect them too, right? Um, part of this is, is talking to people and taking the time if you have the time to do this kind of news coverage. And, and Justin, it sounds like you do. Um, and maybe teasing out the climate impacts in their lives that they might not recognize are climate impacts, right? Uh, and so much of this work is, is, in, is in connecting the dots for them right? And, and in doing that work as, as part of the source work that you're doing, um, but also for, for your audience when you come to write the piece. Um, but this is incredibly time intensive work, right? I, I do accountability journalism and like, I was just filing records requests before I got onto the show. Uh, those records requests cost money to process, right? And I, I may need to get a lawyer to fight a government agency to get these records. Um, so this is, it's not easy work. Um, and, and you have to honor and respect the stories of the people that you end up talking to, um, and you have to honor and, and respect their reality, right? Because they may be living a very different reality than what is being played out in the newspapers or the television. So that's that's my two cents. Ross? Um, it's just so fascinating hearing from both of you. Uh, I'm really enjoying it. And I think that as well, like um, one of the things that I'm hearing and also the things that I see in, in, in my research is so that the problem of climate change is defined in this incredibly narrow way that is also very exclusive. A lot of people don't feel like climate change is for them or it's not affecting them when it actually is. Um, but then also the solutions are defined in a very narrow way too. Um, it's often uh, reported on as though, you know, we have to be doing everything perfectly as individuals first. 
um, which is uh, not the case. And there's also um, that, that narrative was kind of developed by the fossil fuel industry. So BP invented the carbon footprint calculator to keep us all busy focusing on ourselves and not on um, the, the, the real sources of pollution. And so things like accountability are also a, a solution because we need to um, we need to tackle um, the sources of, of, of carbon pollution. And also, you know, there are a lot of things that the uh, frontline communities are doing to respond that aren't being sort of recognized as um, as climate solutions too. often frontline communities are um, uh, kind of. Um, uh, stigmatized for experiencing um, environmental problems. Um, so in the United States, um, surveys show that a lot of um, a lot of people kind of don't see race as a factor in experiencing pollution. They think of it as um, uh, poverty. And then they also tend to blame people for being poor. Um, when we actually know that, I mean, uh, black communities experience um, env um, environmental pollution at much greater rates, regardless of wealth. Um, but, um, you know, th these kind of understandings are so um, narrow. It's like a monoculture of understandings about climate change, um, which is foreclosing real discussions about it and about the issues. And it's foreclosing understandings of responses that we can have to. Thank you, Ross. Um, we're going to move now a little bit to continue talking about the conventions of journalism and uh, their relation in the ways they empower or inhibit climate storytelling. One of the sets of questions the conference wants to engage on Friday relates to journalistic barriers to conveying the urgency of the climate crisis. Um, traditional news values, for example, like breaking news or balance or objectivity or maybe professional taboos against advocacy. How do you see all of these conventions of journalism uh, affecting your work as climate journalists, Mario and, and Justin, or, or conversations you have with editors, for example? And then how do you see them playing out as a scholar, um, Ross? Uh, we'll go back to you, Justin, first. Well, I think it's worth starting with just saying, I, I think that, you know, in my eight years on this beat, I think we've seen a pretty significant evolution. Uh, you know, it's not so long ago where people would, uh, journalists would feel the need to, you know, balance uh, a scientist with a climate denier uh, in search of, uh, you know, uh, supposed objectivity. Um, and I think that sort of has disappeared uh, for the most part. I think we do get into issues. There are there are issues uh, when it comes to you know as you said this question of, of of advocacy or what's perceived as advocacy. And I think there's this this line, and it's it's a challenge uh, to explain this line sometimes to people who aren't versed in the field uh, between you know advocating or suggesting that you know we need to uh, actually address climate change as a planetary uh, question as an issue of human health and well being, and that this is something that you know, uh, I can say without being an advocate and then drawing the line, at least for me, the place where I draw the line is saying, well, I'm not gonna, going to advocate for particular solutions or particular legislation, uh, but but going to, you know, report objectively on what the results of such legislation or, or regulation might be. Um, so that's that's how I try to balance that. But I, I think we've, we've come a long way. Uh, I think there's still a lot of places that are even resistant to, uh, you know, while they might, 
admit the science of climate change, they're still a little resistant to the idea that there's a function of, of or a, a role for journalists to say in saying that we actually have to do something about climate change. And I think that's the next that's the next leap in this conversation. Mario. Yeah, I also I, I think I, I that's a great place to draw a line, Justin. Um, and I, I think I also want to address some of the the structural barriers to talking about climate change at, for example, local newsrooms. I remember being at a local paper um, and trying very, very hard to get climate stories published and being told, hey, man, climate just doesn't click. Right. Um, and this is in a city where the average elevation isn't you know, more than four or five feet above sea level. So how do you address that? What do you do about it? Right. And I, I think one of the main issues is there needs to be broad conversations along newsrooms about just how this is going to affect your everyday life. Right. Um, because then it becomes a story about, well, OK, when it rains, the traffic is going to be really, really bad. OK, that's a traffic story. Get it away from the climate desk. Or, hey, this is going to affect government bonding in our region. Hey, OK, that's a business story. Get it away from the, biz- uh, from the, from the environmental desk and, and get it to the business desk, right? And so, so telling all of the different versions of how the climate crisis is going to be a, a quote-unquote poly crisis uh, at local papers, very difficult to do, involves people understanding what the issue really is, um, but it moves it away from this issue of... Uh, you know, you're advocating for solutions, and then you really are doing the work of informing the public of just how really difficult and terrible a couple of degrees more of, of, of heating is going to make their lives. Thanks, Mario. If I can just add. Oh, sure. Oh, just very quickly, I'll just say, I mean, I think that's, that's spot on. And I think the challenge, of course, is that in our beat system, which has been the sort of way in which newsrooms are structured since, uh, I don't know, since the 19th century, uh, that's not, you know, climate experts are not on your list of, of people you call. And it gets to a bigger societal problem, which is that, you know, the person who deals with traffic may not be all that versed in, in climate. So uh, it's a really, really naughty problem and, uh, you know, different ways that newsrooms are approaching solving it, but it's it's really challenging. Absolutely. Oh, and yeah, I mean, so... I would say as well, you know, it's it's really interesting. It reminds me of a story. Um, so I, I published a, um, a an article in the Columbia Journalism Review called "Climate: The Climate Crisis: A Story for Any Beat," um, and it was, you know, every beat. In fact, it's a story for every beat. Uh, and um, I got a um, I got a message from a, um, a journalist uh, working on a local newspaper, and she wanted to cover. Uh, the fact that there were many more people um, living along riverbanks in Sacramento. And how, you know, she's a climate journalist, she wanted to discuss the impacts of that, um, you know, thinking about it in terms of um, the economy, about, um, you know, where we are as a society and then the kind of loss of um, resources and support for people, plus climate change. And she couldn't get it past her editor. He was just like, this is a stretch. I don't see it as a climate story. So, yeah, the beat, um, the beat system um you know, and I think it's also rooted in like envi- enlightenment ideas about the separation of people and nature. We see environment as a, as a beat about like national parks or, you know, recycling. Um, it's uh, kind of detached uh, from, um, you know, the kind of nitty gritty of everyday life. Um, and really, I don't think it should be this hard. Like ev- every journalist needs to know about GDP. Um, you know, they don't have to be experts in climate science to be able to write about climate change. They need to be experts in their beat. Um, you know, knowing about traffic patterns is um, 
um, a perfectly legitimate source of expertise about climate change too. We just have to think about it less as a science thing and more about, you know, uh, the fact that, you know, every single part of our society is being affected right now. And it's the result of histories of exploitation of people in nature. It's not just about, um, you know, two degrees, um, 1.5 degrees, you know, these things are, um, are important, but they're not the center. And it's sort of this idea again about like how we have this very um, narrow idea about climate change and it's foreclosing all of these different avenues for understanding, for action. You're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM. I'm Douglas Haynes, and today I'm talking about ethics and urgency in climate journalism with three leading climate journalists and scholars. If you have a question or perspective about media climate coverage, please give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also tweet us at WORT Talk or reach out to A Public Affair on Facebook. When you mentioned that detail just now, Ross, about every journalist, you know, we expect every journalist to know about GDP. I thought about this question of advocacy that you all were just talking about and in connection with economic growth, because you you see any coverage of the economy, right? And it's just sort of this unquestioned assumption that growth is where we should be going, right? And that is in the language of the way reporting is done about the economy in a way that it's not in the language about climate or there's not a general consensus about the language around climate. And that's where I wanted to head next. Why does the specific language we use to describe the climate crisis matter? Um, Was it a year or two ago that a number of news organizations uh, made a, a conscious choice to change the language that they use from climate change to climate crisis? Um, or we could also talk about global warming versus global heating, climate violence. Uh, I'd love to hear your perspectives on the importance of language and how you negotiate that in your own reporting and writing. Justin. So it's a very good question. And I, and I think in my mind, the way I approach it typically is on a case by case basis. I mean, just taking, you know, each example you mentioned and thinking through how is my reader going to understand what I'm saying uh, and finding the words or the phrase or the language that's going to best uh, explain what I'm trying to convey. Um, And so you get into things like climate crisis. Uh, I remember when the first sort of wave of of, uh, people started calling, uh, using that phrase instead of climate change. And at the beginning, I was sort of reluctant again because I, I, I just thinking about who the average time meter is and how they might react to climate crisis. I said, okay, let's stick with climate uh, change just you know uh, for a while, uh, and then um, at some point the evolution sort of happened. But but the key I think was just thinking about how is this going to be perceived, uh, and does it advance my ability to convey the information, or does it serve as a distraction? And I guess that's what I'm getting at. At the beginning, I was a little concerned that the debate about climate crisis would be a distraction from the subject matter that I was trying to convey. And I think you can make, you know, you can go through each one and and figure out the best approach. And I don't argue that I have the answer here. I think it's complicated. Mario. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great intervention. I, so, so what I'm really trying to get across to readers Uh, in as elegant and as simple way as possible, right, is that they live in a society where people can can mass produce ways of talking about things, right? 
Um, and they use that to affect the political system. They use it at an industrial scale to sell stuff, to track, you know, what people are thinking about in your home so they can tell you a particular kind of couch at a particular time of hour of the day. Um, and, and for people to have an understanding of that system is really, really important because that directly affects like the word choice that I make, right? I'm going to use words that will either go against the grain uh, of a particular set of, uh, shall we say, messaging, um, but but it, it still has to be understood, right? It still has to make sense for people. And it has to make sense for people who don't have a lot of time. People don't devote a lot of time to written news, period, full stop, right? We're not the way a lot of folks get their news. And so it has to be catchy. It has to flow. It has to be beautiful. It has to be poetic too. Um, and that's a, that's a tall order. Ross? Yeah, I think it's so funny because I feel like you know, it felt like such an important statement to make. Like, you know, we're in a climate crisis. We're not just talking about like, you know, and we need to convey urgency. Um, and it's really interesting, you know, thinking about the origin of the word climate change too. You know, that was um, a, a Republican pollster called Frank Luntz, who was like, you know, global warming sounds too scary. We need to call it climate change. Uh, it's a little bit more, you know, it sounds, it sounds less urgent. Um, so, you know, it, I think it's important, but it's not as important as we're making it out to be as well, because there are a lot of communities that are talking about climate change in really, really different ways that don't track with any of these things. Um, so, and it's really interesting to me because, you know, these are also people who are trying to figure out climate change too, and they're kind of being, um, so so one example is I um, was talking to um, an artist who's uh, part of the Miccosukee tribe in, um, in, in Florida, and he was saying, you know, elders, uh, are just starting to use climate change because if they don't talk about climate change, then they they can't get into conversations um, at the policy level about water levels in the Everglades. Um, and so, you know, I don't want language to be foreclosing either, which I feel like it can be. Um, there are also people in Miami who talk about climate change in terms of gentrification rather than um, like sea level rise or the sort of more like sciencey kinds of things that we think about because they live on high ground and um, their their communities are now being targeted by developers who want who want those extra few inches uh, in Miami to keep building and um, also getting recognition for being kind of resilient builders. And so there are a lot of ways in which language can be used to um, foreclose discussion and to also um, to keep people out of conversations. And so um, I think that um, there are important recognitions being made, but I also still think that, you know, there's much greater diversity of understandings is much more important. So the takeaway I'm getting from listening to you all, uh, it was a really nuanced uh, discussion of the issue of language is that we need multiple kinds of language, depending on various audiences and rhetorical situations, just like we need multiple kinds of, of stories. And, and I'm seeing some nods. So uh, I, I'm hoping my paraphrase was accurate there. At the same time, we need to be aware of how language is used to manipulate people, as several of you said as well, and that there are ideological associations with certain kinds of language. And that brings me to a question about climate disinformation and how journalism uh, continues to try to grapple with covering um, often very calculated kinds of climate disinformation that has been out there for a long time, as lots of good journalists have uncovered over the past few years. 
um, from the oil industry and elsewhere. And this is on my mind in particular right now because the institution where I teach at UW Oshkosh, uh, the foundation there, not the university itself, but the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh Foundation, ha- recently announced a, a talk uh, coming up this week um, called "Climate: The Climate Change Crisis or Not, um, which in and of itself does cast some doubt, right, the title. But what's uh, what's more concerning to me when I looked into it was the funding, and uh, it's funded by something new that nobody on campus had ever heard of called the Freedom of Expression Fund. And uh, this turns out, after doing a little digging, to be funded by uh, a very well-connected uh, Wall Street investor uh, who has funded all kinds of um, prominent climate disinformation organizations. Um, and he's wanting to get a whole series of events going. So the first one is about climate, but we can expect there's going to be lots of other um, ideologically infused um, events coming up. I don't want to spend too long on that, but I wanted to give you sort of a a hypothetical, um, maybe not a story of national importance, but certainly connected to a larger set of stories happening across the country about climate disinformation and power. Um, How would you go about covering that, talking about it, and, and more broadly, climate disinformation. Um, what are you seeing as the media tries to grapple with it right now? And we'll go back to you, Justin. I know I just threw a lot at you there. Take it where you will. Well, I, I'm, I'm really keen to hear Mario's answer, especially given Floodlight's work. But I, I guess I would just say is, you know, that's a shocking um, but not necessarily surprising example, Douglas. Uh, you know, one of the things that the fossil fuel industry has been very good about is finding ways to latch on to, you know, uh, institutions uh, that have, you know, this legitimacy, uh, you know, in, in culture and society um, and sort of dropping their views that way. So if, you know, I mean, everywhere from Texas to, uh, you know, in the Netherlands, you'd be surprised that, you know, you think of progressive Europe, Europeans, but you know they uh, the the you know the, the fossil fuel industry is sponsoring museums and school projects for kids, uh, and really just shaping the way that people think about that. I think it's um, you know it, it's it's presents a lot of interesting opportunities for good journalism, um, and I know Floodlight does a lot of great investigations in this area, uh, but it also is just something to be mindful about. You know, as we report generally, like where do we see the tentacles of of this money and influence uh, popping up, and how can we, you know, sometimes for me, you know, not not as an investigative reporter, it's it's a it's a matter of just sort of looking at it, acknowledging it, um, um, and it might just be a couple paragraphs in a bigger story, but just constantly trying to be aware of where it pops up because once you start once you've seen it, you start to see it everywhere. Yeah, absolutely, um, Doug. I, I I think people need to do exactly what you did when they encounter this thing and you don't have to be a reporter to do it uh but you got to follow the money right and a lot of the times people need want to try and obscure the source of money that is paying for this kind of communication because they implicitly recognize that if an audience understands that this is messaging being paid for by a fossil fuel corporation or somebody who's heavily invested in fossil fuels or ideologically likes the stuff um, then perhaps you, you look at it with a bit more of a skeptical eye, right? And this sort of brings us to the problem of, of tracking political speech and the money that pays for it in the American Republic in the 21st century, which is a very difficult one and one I spend a lot of time on. Um, but, but it also really gets you and audiences into the, the crux of 
conversations about honesty and transparency and good journalism, right? Good journalistic institutions bend over backwards to be honest and transparent with their readers, right? And if somebody is implicitly trying to hide the source of funding for communications about this sort of stuff from its audience, that's a big red flag, you know? Um, but disinformation by the fossil fuel industry and, and by, you know, other adjacent industries that depend heavily on fossil fuels is, is one of the main drivers of the climate crisis, full stop, right? This is a political problem. It's not a technological problem. Mm -hmm. We have the technology to reduce fossil fuel emissions. We don't have the political will. And a lot of the times how we communicate turns into political action. Um, so, so yeah, people are heavily invested in deceiving folks about the nature and reality of this crisis. Absolutely. And we do a lot of work to try and unmask that deception. Ross? So I really love both of those responses because just responding to the messaging amplifies that message. Yeah. So all you're doing is giving them free publicity and repeating what they've said. And so people, um, you know, there are studies that show that, that people just hear that message again rather than the counter to it. Um, there are ways that you can um, kind of, there's a, there's a, um, a branch of research called inoculation um, where you um, kind of prime people to receive disinformation of some sort um, by kind of appealing to their kind of rational brain and sort of mentioning counter arguments. So they're already counter arguing against that. But, you know, in day to day life, um, just responding to disinformation will just amplify it. And instead, encouraging to be people to be critical media consumers is much more of a, um, a constructive way of doing that because um, people are also you know, very tuned into ideas like fairness and, um, and the importance of transparency and accountability. And so talking about those things rather than just saying, hey, climate change is a crisis, uh, you know, it doesn't actually, um, you know, it's, it's much more effective, I think, and also, you know, encourages people to be you know, truly critical. Um, and it's also not saying that there's like a right or wrong way to talk about climate change either, which is the other way is, you know, people can feel like you're kind of telling them off. Um, and so, you know, I think those are all just such important things. And also a really important thing to remember right now is that um, a lot of far right groups have moved from climate denial into um, blaming uh, migrants and other marginalized groups for environmental problems. So they're not saying climate change isn't the problem anymore, but they're obscuring the real causes. And this is um, something that is incredibly important right now because people are experiencing the impacts of climate change. There are more people being displaced for factors that include climate change. And, um, and people are looking for narratives to explain this. Um, and so we need to get ahead of that. Um, and we need to be able to show the real causes and the real victims um, and uh, not get involved in um, debates over whether climate change is happening or not, because that is exactly what all of these groups who are funding um, uh, speakers to go onto campuses uh, want you to do. They want you to be busy um, fighting the wrong battles. They want to police what um, environmentalists say and, and researchers and journalists, you know, that's why we get, you know, pushback from, you know, people who were paid to do this on social media you know they want to keep us busy they want us to shut up and um and and not to focus on on the the, the real causes and the real problems that exist 
Thank you all for um, giving me lots of food for thought there. And I want to follow up on what you just said there, Ross, and turn towards uh, international coverage of climate and um, particularly international stories in the U.S. context. Because as you said, Ross, to understand issues like climate-driven migration, we have to have a sense of where people are coming from, why they're moving, how climate relates to why they're moving. Do you see enough effective international coverage in the U.S. media? And what are the challenges to doing this kind of work? Uh, We'll come back to you, Justin. Well, you know, I think, I mean, uh, clearly, no, uh, I think we need uh, a lot, a lot more. I think the challenge, of course, is, is um, you know, that, that newsrooms are, are gutted, uh, international correspondents are f- fewer and far further between, and also pressed to cover, uh, you know, the many other uh, crises and things that appear, appear, uh, underscore, appear more urgent. So, um I think we need we need more of it. I think that would be the biggest thing. I think you know at the same time this goes back to the challenge we were we were uh, talking about earlier. I think um, you know you're starting to see more of it, but a lot of people are not necessarily versed in this, right? So if you are somebody who spent their career as a foreign correspondent and perhaps you know a lot about uh, you know various uh, uh, various uh, you know economic issues or uh, typical, you know, you have, might have relations with the State Department or, you know, things that typically are, are within the remit of a foreign correspondent, you, you might just not have any familiarity with it. So I think it's a, it's a big challenge. I do think we're seeing more of it. Um, I also think, you know, the, the, so I guess the final point I would, I would say, of course, is um, uh, getting back to the challenge of perspective and, um, and how do you get uh, perspectives uh, on the ground that are not uh, just uh, or, or, or are informed, well informed by you know what what locals are are thinking and feeling, and I think that's a challenge. I know for me, I, I've spent time um, you know in uh, abroad and and getting the opportunity to spend enough time to really get familiar with with the challenges. I think is another another challenge. Thank you, Mario. Yeah, uh, international reporting is really hard to do from the United States, right? Because different countries also have different um, standards when it comes to journalism, right? So if even if you're like hiring freelancers and paying good local rates, right, your editors may spend a lot of time uh, fixing stories that, you know, aren't written up to the standards of your particular publication. It's, it's a really tough thing. There should be more resources about it. Uh, it would help us kind of better understand and engage with the world broadly. Um, and it's it's also not necessarily an international story, right? I think here in Miami and South Florida, uh, if you go to Immokalee in Central Florida, where, where people are picking tomatoes all day, a lot of the folks there are from the, the sort of Mayan highlands, right? Which are being devastated by changes in rainfall patterns. And they don't speak Spanish, they speak Quechua, right? Um, and, and you talk to them and, and they've come over here for a particular set of reasons. And then here, they're uh, actually having a lot of trouble with with heat and with um, you know kidney disease because they can't get hydrated enough because temperatures are soaring. Um, so so how do you tell that international story, right? Um, it's an incredibly important topic. It's going to become much more important um, as this crisis accelerates, right? Um, early Department of Defense. Uh, investigations into the effects of, of climate change uh, warned that it would 
likely caused the creation of, of quote unquote, fascist castles as uh, developed nations put up walls and cut off migration and increase the amount of, of, of nationalizing that they did with their products and their energies. Um, and one way to counter that is by knowing as much as you can about what's going on in the world around you, right? Um, that's why international reporting on climate change is so important, but it's rare. It's hard to do. It's hard to do well. Ross? Um, I wanted to talk about, so, you know, there's some macro studies of kind of talking about climate change um, in other countries, and often it focuses on, um, you know, there, there'll be discussions of climate migration that kind of blame it all on climate change. And I think it's really important to kind of understand climate change as part of the, um, you know, bigger histories of colonialism, of capitalism that, that, of course, that are like helping these things along. Also, a lot of people get stuck in place. Um, they don't have the resources to leave. And um, that's a story that's not often told. Um, there is a um, anti-migrant sentiment within environmentalism that's kind of historical and deeply rooted. Um, like the, um, um, you think about like invasive species, for example, and how that language is applied to both animals and plants and also people um and uh these are really tough questions for the environmental movement to tackle as well and think about and um so that's one thing that i see kind of um within journalism is like a simplistic look at it that also doesn't look at sort of structural causes which is um is something that journalism struggles with generally is talking about things you know in a long-term um sense or or an episodic sense um, and then also um, there tends to be a focus on the spectacle of disaster um, and not on the causes of it. Uh, so um, it, uh, I think that there is a, you know, a whole kind of knot of issues that we really need to think about um, in terms of um, reporting on um, migration, especially migration related to um, uh, climate change. Um, but uh, I think that... Um, you know, some of the things that really need teasing out again is, is you know, thinking about climate change as something with a history and not just um, something that started with the Industrial Revolution. We've got about three minutes left here on a public affair, and I, I don't know if we're going to get back around to all of you. So I'm just going to throw this one out and whoever comes up with a good example or if you have something at the forefront of your mind, let us know. So it would be great to end with current examples of what you see as really um ethical and urgent climate storytelling that you admire? What What is something you would like to share with folks out there right now lis listening that um, you think they should know about? Whether that's a project or a story or, or a writer. Mario? Justin? Well, you know, I, I don't want to say this was like a, a, a barn burner of a story, but I, I think it was really well done. Um, the Wall Street Journal had a piece about how a rural North Carolina county was trying to attract a, a, a battery uh, production firm from Turkey uh, because of the uh, IRA tax credits, the Inflation Reduction Act tax credits. And they, they did a really good job of explaining why a county might not necessarily want that kind of investment and how other counties across the U.S. have been burned before. Um, I, I think, you know, uh, it could have dealt with the people on the ground who weren't the politicians a little bit better, right? But that's something that, you know, drop-in journalism suffers from because you only have a certain amount of time. But I, I think they did a pretty good job. 
Ross, do you have another one in mind? I know this is your your wheelhouse. Um, I mean, I'm just really inspired by all the local journalists who cover climate change as a day-to-day issue. That's uh, so. Um, uh, I have a friend, Alex Harris, who's a Miami uh, Herald um, journalist, and um, she did a fantastic job reporting on how um, sea level rise is affecting people's septic tanks. And it was her most clicked story. People were just like, oh, no, are you kidding me? Like septic tanks are um, very widely used in Miami and uh, it is, and they're already being compromised. People are just like, nobody wants to think about their septic tank failing. We got time for a quick shout, shout out, Justin. Um, I'll, I'll just, I'll shout out uh, Floodlight partially just because Mario's here, but Floodlight does great, great work. And uh, I think really uncovering um, a lot of the sort of behind the scenes things that we should all know about, but don't. It's been uh, a great joy and a real privilege to talk with you all today. I've been talking with three panelists at this Friday's Ethics, Urgency, and Climate Journalism Conference at the Wisconsin Institutes for Discovery on the UW-Madison campus. We've had with us Justin Warland from Time Magazine. Thank you, Justin. Ross Thank Do- you. Ross Donald, Assistant Professor at American University. Thanks so much, Ross. Thank you so much, Doug. And Mario Risa with Floodlight Environmental News Collaborative. Thanks, Mario. Thank you, folks. It's been a pleasure. And I'd like to thank uh, today's engineer, Andrew Thomas, producer Jade Iseri Ramos, news director Shali Pittman. I'm your host, Douglas Haynes. And thank you, listeners, for joining us today on A Public Affair here at WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. Stay tuned for Madison Bookbeat. We come and listen and support it. We come and never be reported with information that would never be reported. Disregard the mainstream media, distorted. We come and listen and support it. Live and direct, we come and never be reported with information that would never be reported. Disregard the mainstream media, distorted. We come and listen and support it. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take it to another mental level. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take it to another mental level. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take it to another mental level. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take it to another mental level.